You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Hello, everybody. Peter Maravellis here on behalf of City Lights booksellers and publishers and the City Lights Foundation. I'd like to welcome you to City Lights Live, a virtual reading series that follows in the footsteps of our in-store calendar. We continue to feature the works of authors we know and love through readings, discussions, and forums moving into the fall season. As always, we are beaming to you from the unceded ancestral grounds of the Ramatishaloni peoples, also known as the San Francisco Bay Area. We'd like to take this moment to acknowledge and offer our respect to those who have come before us as stewards of the land. Now, as many of you know, City Lights is a publisher as well as a bookstore. It's always a happy occasion when we can celebrate one of our own books. Tonight, we are launching such a book celebrating the publication of a new collection of prose by the late Ted Berrigan. It's called Get the Money, Collected Prose, 1961 to 1983. It brings together the essential prose writings of the iconic New York School poet Ted Berrigan. This is a milestone event in the publishing annals, not only of City Lights, but I think really of the US poetry scene. It draws upon many essays, reviews, and introductions that Berrigan produced in his life. It also documents his innovative poetics and techniques, as well as the creative milieu of poets centered around New York's poetry project for whom he served as both a nurturer and a catalyst. So we have with us tonight an all-star cast of readers. We featuring Edmund Berrigan, Anselm Berrigan, Erica Kaufman, Hua Nguyen, and Nick Sturm. This evening's event will be moderated by City Lights' very own Garrett Caples. So a little bit of background about all our participants. Garrett Caples is a poet and a senior editor at City Lights. He is the curator of the Spotlight Poetry Series and has edited numerous books for City Lights. He is a gifted poet in his own right. His most recent book of poems is called Lovers of Today. It's published by Wave Books. Anselm Berrigan will also be joining us. He is a poet, editor, and educator. City Lights published his book Free Cell in 2009. Also joining us is another Berrigan, Edmund Berrigan. He is the author of numerous collections of poetry. His most recent is More Gone, published by City Lights in 2019. His other titles include We'll All Go Together from Further and Fewer and Can It from Letter Machine Editions. Edmund Berrigan is a co-editor with Anselm Berrigan, Alice Notley, and Nick Sturm of tonight's featured title, Get the Money. He lives and works in Brooklyn, New York. Also with us tonight is Erica Kaufman. She is the author of the book Post Classic and also Instant Classic, both from Roof Books and Sensory Impulse from Factory School. She's the director of the Institute for Writing and Thinking at Bard College, which she is also a writer in residence. Also joining us tonight is Hua Nguyen. She is the author of several books, including Red Juice Poems, 1998 to 2008, and Violet Energy Ingots. Her latest collection of poems, A Thousand Times You Lose Your Treasure, is the winner of the Canada Book Award and finalist for a 2021 National Book Award. She makes her home in Toronto, where she serves as the visiting practitioner for Toronto Metropolitan University. And last but not least, Nick Sturm will also be joining us. He is a lecturer in English at Georgia State University and visiting faculty in creative writing at Emory University. 
His scholarship on the New York School has appeared with the Poetry Foundation, the Brooklyn Rail, the Poetry Project Newsletter, amongst other outlets. In addition to co-editing Get the Money, he is also the editor of Early Works by Alice Notley, forthcoming from Phonograph Editions in 2023. So I would like to open the evening with a recording of Ted Berrigan. Big town will wear you down, but it's only here you can turn around 360 degrees and everything is clear from here at the center to every point along the circle of horizon. Here you can see for miles and miles and miles. Be born again daily. Die nightly for a change of style. Here, clearly here. See with affection. Bleakly cultivate compassion. Whitman's walk unchanged after its fashion. So I'd like to turn it over now to Garrett Caples to kick off the evening. Garrett, it's all yours. All right, thank you, Peter. And thank you all for coming to the celebration of the publication of the collected prose of Ted Berrigan, Get the Money. Imagine everyone here is familiar with Ted and his work, but briefly stated, Ted was born in Providence, Rhode Island in 1934. He enlisted in the army and deployed to Korea at the tail end of the Korean War. He was later stationed in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where he attended the University of Tulsa on the GI Bill. He also met then high school-aged Ron Padgett, Dick Gallup, and Joe Brainerd, with whom he formed the core of what became known as the second generation of the New York School. He moved to New York City in 1961 and published his best-known work, The Sonnets, in 1964, by which time he'd also begun his mimeo periodical C Magazine and been accepted among New York School poets. He'd also met and married his first wife, Sandy Berrigan, with whom he had two kids, David and Kate. He would then lead a peripatetic life as a visiting poet at various colleges and universities. During this period, he met and later married Alice Notley, with whom he had two kids, Anselm and Edmund. By the mid-70s, the family had moved back to New York City, where Ted became an Apollinaire-like influence on countless younger poets. He died in 1983. A little more than 30 years later, Ted had long since ascended into legend, rightly considered one of the most significant American poets of his generation. His collected poems had been edited by Alice Anselmanetti and published by the University of California, fittingly in the same series as the collected poems of his hero, Frank O'Hara. I was in New York City having dinner one night with Anselm, whom I published in the City Light Spotlight series a few years earlier. Naturally, my ears pricked up when he mentioned that he and his mom and brother, later to be joined by Nick Sturm, were trying to gather all of Ted's prose with an eye towards publishing a collection. California had stopped acquiring poetry-related titles by then, so I told Anselm when they had a manuscript to send it my way to see whether I could get it published by City Lights. About five years after that, I received an email from Eddie asking me if I wanted to see the manuscript. By this time, I'd also published him in the Spotlight series, and I'd even made a pilgrimage to Paris for a memorable lunch with Alice, so I guess I was too deep to turn back. Curiously enough, I hadn't read much Ted at this point, enough to get by as a poet, but otherwise I'd avoided him because I didn't want it to interfere with my friendship with Anselm and later with Eddie. It took me years to work up the nerve to watch the video to Waiting on a Friend by the Rolling Stones, although practically my favorite band, because Anselm was in it, a young street urchin running around St. Mark's Place. We're the same age and I can't imagine him watching footage of me from the same day in 1981. I was probably being chastised by a nun. My Boston childhood was probably more like Ted's than Anselm's. I don't recommend deliberate ignorance as an editorial policy, but in this case, it paid off, 
in the sense that the majority of Ted's work was still new to me, generating that excitement of first contact that sustained me during the daunting task of turning a thick manuscript into a book. Due to the supply chain situation, we had to accomplish a great deal in a short amount of time, and I had more than one seven-day work week in the process. But Ted is a powerful stimulant, and it was impossible not to enjoy myself whenever I was working on the stuff. Get the Money is an endlessly fascinating volume. Like the prose of many poets who privilege the poem above all else, Get the Money seems at first glance like a haphazard affair, a collection of occasional writing on art and literature, dictated by opportunity and circumstance rather than deliberate intention, largely written, as it says, to get paid, and interspersed with journal excerpts, introductions to books and readings, letters to friends, and short pieces of a purely creative nature. On one level, that's exactly what it is. But read as a book, it far exceeds the sum of its already compelling parts. Pertain has very specific and consistent ideas, not only about poetry, but also about being a poet. And these ideas animate his prose all the way through its various manifestations and two-decade arc of composition. He presents a unified aesthetic throughout. It's impossible to overstate just how influential Ted has been to contemporary American poetry. Much of our picture of what so-called New York school poetry is comes through him, rather than directly from, say, O'Hara or Ashbery, in the sense that he elaborates his own poetics from his consideration of the first generation, and from it extrapolates his own highly original poetry, while also generously sharing his insights with others. Ted figures things out and tells you about them. And perhaps every book as great as Frank O'Hara's lunch poem needs someone to who can tell you exactly why it is great. Without Ted, there may not have been a New York school as we know it, or else that term might have just referred to Ashbury, O'Hara, Coke, Schuyler, and Guest. More than any other single figure, Ted is responsible for turning the New York school into a body of knowledge, some of which he explained, but much of which he generated himself. Despite the random nature of his prose output, he is easily as important a 20th century poetic mind as an Olson or a Duncan, a Maximus whose subject matter is not the polis, but rather poetry itself. Taken as a whole, Get the Money puts this picture of Ted Berrigan into sharp focus. And just as his expansive postmodernist vision of poetry convinces you anything can be bent to the service of the poem, his prose teaches you never to waste the opportunity to write a piece. Some of the most delightful things in the book are things that he was compelled to write for extra literary purposes like the report he wrote for a seminar he co-taught on how to teach poetry to school kids. I envision Get the Money taking its place alongside those essential books of poets' prose, like Mallarmé's Divagations, as a major source of inspiration and ongoing go to creation. Let me end the introduction simply by thanking Anselm, Eddie, Nick, and of course Alice for making this book and giving me a crack at it. It's a gift to me, a gift to City Lights, and a gift to poetry itself. And I would like to just read a quick excerpt from the piece I mentioned. It's called Teaching with the School Teachers. Now, here I am at the society. I go up to room 514. It's 3.15, so I'm early. There's about eight people, both sexes, ranging in age from maybe 25 to 100, waiting. One man introduces himself. I'm Howard Schlock, or something, he says. I blank, blank, blank for the academy. That's fine, I say. Nice to see you. Do more people show up? Oh, yes, lots more, he says. Good, I say, we'll wait. I drink about six cups of delicious coffee. The room is a fine, spacious, airy room, very pleasant, everything nicely prepared, chairs in a circle with a big Samuel Johnson chair for me at the top of the circle. By 3.40, about 22 or three people are there, though I notice most don't sign in. I sit in my Dr. Johnson chair, wearing my Allen Ginsberg hair and Charles Manson beard, and say, hello, it's nice to see you all here. My name is Ted Berrigan. I'm a poet 
I'm sure you've never heard of me, but I don't know you either. So let's do something about that. I give them my who am I routine. 36 years old, Korean vet, married, two children, taught at Yale, Michigan, Iowa, etc. Taught eighth grade once, read in high school and junior high schools across the God's creation. Have five books published, blah, blah. Then I say, who are you? How many teach school? Nearly all do. Okay. One is a young black student, 18 or so, there with his teacher. One lady who just wandered in likes poetry and wants to save the trees in Central Park by handing out a poem she's writing right now, that is writing it right now, but handing it out next week on tree day or something like that in the park. The teachers are all open and friendly, seem interested in the whole proceedings. I tell them of my various experiences reading to high school and junior high kids, how I got the kids' attention, how I try to assure holding it, how there are difficulties sometimes. I warn them that there is no bullshit in poetry, that they can't read kids' stuff they think is trash just to get the kids interested, but they themselves will have to search out the poems. I tell them Lawrence has poems the kids can dig, William Carlos Williams, lots of older poets too. We all start naming poets and we like this and get excited. The teachers talk to each other and share the experiences they've had that have been successful with readings to the kids. I said that to me, a poem was anything anyone called a poem. I didn't care to worry myself about what was poetry and what wasn't. All that interested me was whether or not it moved me, surprised me, delighted me, bored me, etc. And I added, a poet is simply a person who writes or has written poems, even one poem. Those definitions were not relevant to what we cared about, I thought. All this seemed to make the atmosphere loose and easy. Everyone participated plenty, though I did have to tell the tree lady she couldn't read her tree poem right then, though she could read it after class to those who wanted to stay. Thank you. And now, our next reader is Erica Kaufman. So I'm going to read two pieces from the book. One is from towards the front of the book, and one is from towards the end. And I'd initially thought that I would say something about the importance of Ted Berrigan's work and about um, the huge impact that it's had on me as a poet, but also on me as a teacher. And then I spend time with the book and it's just a profoundly extraordinary collection. Um, so with that, I'm just going to read. Sentences from the short reviews. Sometimes the egg cartons seem to turn into machines or human machines with a disconcerting sexiness. Floor piece is a beam one and one half feet square and 24 feet long. It is as regal in its presence as is a fallen telephone pole, but considerably quieter. The environment, titled 2165, carried its visitors through 200 years of time, during which cosmetics and presumably everything else went from cosmetics to bomb wreckage to barely recognizable fossilized cosmetics. Color acts upon color, to prove itself smarter than the eye and quicker. Some of the paintings are active, others quiet. A wide variety of appearance in both texture and color coexists with a deliberate obviousness of deception. One is surrounded by row upon row of solemn Quaker oats, all testimony to the high seriousness of art magic. His work suggests a sweet and gentle seriousness not to be interpreted as conscience, and his style is almost a handwriting. Clear to the eye and pleasing as well in their opulent austerity, these shapes and forms are not above deceiving the mind, 
which delights in perceiving an explosive asterisk in a field or a Portuguese man of war in a plant. These are accomplished and tasteful works whose gentle optical effects seem meant to open the eye and provoke the mind rather than, as is more common, to poke the eye and provoke the ion. His specialty is a kind of underwater tropical cubism in which sinuous forms weave quietly up and down in gentle eerie light. By including a piece of remembered cliff walk and rooftop from Newport of 1964 or Michigan of 1965 with a postcard sky from 1905 and photographs from his own past, the artist succeeds in updating his feelings into a nostalgia for the present as well as the past. Jesus, if it is Jesus, is holding up two fingers as if giving odds on something meanwhile reaching for the wine with a furtive hand. These are attractive and intelligent works, which is perhaps why they remain unsuccessful in the end. Later still lifes of flowers illustrate a shift in attention to method and are handled directly and with strength. In the best of these, ferocious bouquets are powerfully set into bent shaving mugs. He has reduced his white bowling pin cloven hoofed ladies circumstances to solipsistic solitude on liquitex canvas. Thus, one upright piece consists of flat planes of metal painted blue, separated by two very large parallel blue circles whose planes face the sides in contrast to the face front planes of the blue rectangles above and below them. Most attractive are her landscape pieces in which fantasy is suggested by clusters of pinhead shapes placed on rough textured sloping planes to suggest delicate and mysterious brigadoons. These environments are peopled with mad dwarfs in stately poses and surrounded by silence. His giant shirt and tie has an engaging nuttiness to it and is also very sexy, looking much like an instant bed. The oils, red, blue, and yellow masses of football players scrimmaging conveyed the sneaky idea that all the players were on the same team and liked each other very much. Very quiet green, yellow, white, and gray forms are placed on color backgrounds, which are not backgrounds at all, but environments. They derive from the shape of the corners and resemble emblems or kites or themselves. The work is pleasant, but recedes until it is practically out of sight. His landscapes are personal experiences, including floods, fires, and rugged going, sometimes looking like Turner's painted by Daniel Boone. The artist is against war, I guess, but it is obvious that for him, the point of the picture was the pictorial challenge. This piece, very sexy and very lovely, has a way of seeming about to turn into a vicious karate bout at one minute or the next. In this work, as in many of the others, all the parts were movable and could be rearranged. In every case, however, there seemed to be no reason to want to change the artist's arrangements. 
He paints sure-handed, starkly strong representational pictures, most of which contained a room organized around a seated figure in such a manner as to either strongly project the figure onto the surface or else to gently withdraw it under the angular dominance of the furnishings. While the paintings never fail to be impressive, they seem unable to escape out from their yoke of being good. The color vibrations make for an eye-deceiving soft edge appearance, which seems to exist simultaneously with the actual hard edge bands, while the size of the total structure delivers it safely out of the sideshow into the Museum for Monuments. They have the quietness of stone. His jungle gym enormities stretch across both time and space skeletally, allowing the viewer to see through the art immediately and finally. This in itself seems like a kind of genius, and the boring high seriousness of the work doesn't keep it from being fun either. She created an environment in white consisting of three tunnels throughout which she dispersed cosmetics, cosmetic assemblages, the wreckage of cosmetics, cosmetic posters and nude female mannequins, some in sections, with one real semi-nude female brushing her hair on a high ladder as a bonus. These were the most satisfactory works in the show by dint of their total refusal to offer satisfaction in any way. Another painting, a large red chrysanthemum that nearly fills the frame, contains 450 separate petals, bright red, which could also be schmooze. The collages, made up of arrangements of one-inch square cutouts from magazines and newspapers, had an interestingly organized messiness whose patterns seemed always about to gather into total design, but instead always lead back into the labyrinth. The artist, a well-known young French assemblagist, had a show of works made up of the remnants of various meals gelatinized. It was as if Bernard and the garbage man had collaborated, a much talented garbage man, of course, bacon, bread crusts, coffee grounds, and cluttered ashtrays remain real and warm in their gaudy time capsules, turning the stomach just enough to please the eye and delight the mind. One sees first a house, a child playing, sketched in a few daringly economic lines and circles, then realizes it is language, by which time it is almost better than art. Her wit, however, is poker-faced. His pleasant overlapping fun and machines paintings are a little like good linoleum, but without interesting scuff marks. The colors are impeccable and the paintings are incontrovertible. Nevertheless, that possibility of sex that Picasso insists is necessary for friendship is absolutely there. Each sheet has been molded into a form whose exterior confronts space absolutely with its chair memory, if it is a chair. He showed witty grotesques whose resemblance to sausages dared Freudian interpretation, but whose Coney Island House of Mirrors scale constantly turned potential phallic horrors into oversized friendly worms standing on their hind legs. Light becomes a lace curtain in a window and is meant to give a human glow to the scenes, one of which is a female dwarf in a cell awaiting the guillotine. He showed delicate abstract oils of a personal Tiffany cosmos in which light breaks where a quiet sun shines. His work is deliberate, 
deliberately poetic, but not very far from decadent, and this polarity tends to make the paintings unbearable. In spite of this, they're not unbearable and mark a very high level of achievement, genuine if specialized. Offhand references in these thoughtful, gracefully intelligent works to R. Picasso and the Playmate of the Month have nothing to do with what is so solidly given, but are simply bonuses of genuine Black humor. The taste is pleasant and the insane perfection mild. He proclaims the victory of the spirit over the flesh from two monumental studios in West Berlin in lots of small bronze abstractions that often resemble birds cunningly poked here and there with arrows. Naropa workshop notes. Preliminary. A poem is a personal and measured communication, though it may be at the same time a cri de cour, or a found work such as a paragraph from a newspaper article on the current gold market and its economic implications, i.e. the cost of milk per year for the average American family, and it in particular sections of the country. It is still, who is speaking? What is that or person like? Why are they talking at all, telling meaning? And to whom do they think they are speaking? Thus, what learning about poetry is, is learning how to read, witness. Of who we and all they are, you all now know. But you know, after they began to find us out, we grew, before they died thinking us the causes of their acts. Now we'll not know the truth of some still at the piano, though they often date from us causing these changes, we think we are. We don't care though, so tall up there in young air, but things get darker as we move to ask them, whom must we get to know to die so you live and we know? Thank you. Thanks very much, Erica. That was great. Um, our next reader is one of the co-editors of the volume, Nick Stern. Thanks so much, Garrett. I wanted to start by saying that um, editing this book with Anselm and Eddie and Alice has um, been one of the great honors of my work and um, my life and spending time and the kind of thinking that I've uh, chosen to spend time in. Um, and uh, it was amazing listening to the first piece that Erica read. Those were uh, sentences from short reviews that Ted Berrigan wrote for the magazine Art News in 1965 and 1966. And one of my first experiences with Ted Berrigan's prose was um, finding out from some source, I, I don't remember where, that he had written for, um, for Art News. It's in an interview, he mentions it. And I was aware that we had this very um, strong attachment with the way that New York school poets like James Schuyler and John Ashbery and Frank O'Hara had been attached to the art world, but we didn't seem to have a record of the way that Ted Berrigan had done so. And I went to um, the library at my school where all of the issues of art and news had been rebound in the periodical section. And I pulled all of the magazines off of the shelf and would go through them page by page looking for TB initials at the end of these little art reviews and hearing Erica read these incredible sentences uh, from these 
dozens of reviews that he published, I just remembered reading those sentences for the first time and being blown away that they weren't collected somewhere. So to be a part of collecting them is, um, means everything to me. There's a description of Ted Berrigan um, by the poet Tony Toll. Um, Tony Toll has this little book called Memoir in 1960 to 1963. And in it, he offers what I think is a really unique description of who Ted Berrigan was as a reader. And I wanna just read this description really quickly. So this is about Tony Toll meeting Ted Berrigan for the first time in the early 60s. There was no question that Ted had read a lot more poetry than I had. He had discovered O'Hara, Coke, and Ashbery, and James Schuyler on his own a couple of years before, and had been single-minded in searching out their often hard-to-come-by publications and read them assiduously. He was perhaps the foremost scholar on the New York School, and now he was ready to join it. And there are times I think when Ted Berrigan's work is described somehow as secondary to people like um, Frank O'Hara um, and John Ashbery. And I think reading Get the Money shows you that how much of a misrecognition that is of his um, relationship to their work. And I wanted to read two pieces from Get the Money that show, I think a portrait of um, Ted Berrigan as a scholar on the New York School. Um, he had such a bibliographic, um, closeness to the work. And um, I think what Tony Toll means as scholar is simply that um, as a reader, he was sophisticated uh, and devoted. And um, he showed that devotion with a lot of grace and a lot of humor. So this is um, Ted Berrigan's review of a book called Pavilions by the poet Kenward Elmsley, um, who recently passed away. This is published in a magazine called Culture. Kenward Elmsley is the least known of that group of poets miss but aptly named by John Myers and Don Allen, the New York School, whose role I think would include John Ashbery, Kenneth Koch, James Schuyler, Frank O'Hara, Barbara Guest, Bill Berkson, and not Edward Field and Kenward Elmsley. At the moment, I'm not at liberty to reveal its location. Also, as a matter of fact, James Schuyler is making a strong bid for Kenward's title However, with regards to both these writers, an underground group of young Turks seems determined to get the manuscripts from them and plagiarize their works. I know that reading Kenward Elmsley's poems has had a strong effect on my own writing. For one thing, he has made me very aware of individual words, their sweet eccentricity. For another, and most important to me, the way his poems are, i.e. take place right now, is tremendously exciting. He is able to include a kind of daylight nostalgia in his poems without sacrificing any of the present to the past, a very sexy and useful trick in making right now be right now. He is a very personal poet, though he tempts us often to forget it. Like Ashbery and Koch and O'Hara, each in his different manner, Elmsley is an American poet with an absolutely non-un-American style voice. Offhand, I would guess that he owes less to Apollinaire than his schoolmates and perhaps to hardcore surrealism. I remember when I first met Tom Veach about four years ago. One day he noticed my copy of Pavilions and he told me that some friends of his at Columbia had built an altar to Kenward Elmsley in their room to pray to during exams. 
it wasn't so much his poems, although they liked them a lot. It was his name, Kenward Elmsley. They thought that was a really great name, prayed for it every day. Lately, Kenward Elmsley's poems have been appearing in C in Arms Soroyan's Lines magazine and Mother magazine and Art and Literature. And for those interested, he's had work in Garrett Lansing's set in Locus Solis's numbers two, three, and five, in the Hasty Papers, and in a new folder, just to mention a few. He also did the libretto for the opera Lizzie Borden, which premiered in March at the New York City Center. And he and Joe Brainerd have collaborated on a beautiful baby book available at 8th Street Bookshop, which I presume will be reviewed in this magazine sometime. Of the poems and magazines, the one that shouldn't be missed is Elmsley's long, beautiful, and very major, whatever that means, poem, The Champ, in C number 10. Now to end this, let me quote the poem containing the greatest line I've ever read in anything, anywhere. Expert at Veneers. In Montana, claws skimmed through the dawn. Herders just saddle up, yes, that's it. But then they gulp Hickoff pills in the high schools, not to skip one ambulance in the tunnel of fun. That symbiosis in the garden says to adventure, the jelly on the daffodil will mildew by July, and the orange result, if the birds come by, will suffice as our capital, won't it? And I was there, and I was there. Here we are in what seems to be an aerial predicament. The government certainly looks handsome in the mackerel sky, awaiting wind fungus be ribboned in its way goodbye. Blackamore stump, how luminous you'll be. And I was there, and I was there. And the second piece I'll read is um, Ted Berrigan's obituary for Frank O'Hara. Um, which was published in the underground newspaper, The East Village Other, in August of 1966. It's called Frank O'Hara Dead at 40. Frank O'Hara is dead. He died Monday night, July 25th at Bayview Hospital, Mastic Beach, Long Island, after having been struck by a taxi cab on Fire Island early Sunday morning. He was 40 years old and lived at 791 Broadway. The loss is incalculable and all but unspeakable. The loss of the man makes the air more difficult to breathe in. The loss of the poet can be compared only to the equally tragic early deaths of Guillaume Apollinaire and Vladimir Mayakovsky, the two poets in this century perhaps closest to Frank O'Hara in style, spirit, and stature. He had five books of poetry published, A City Winter and Other Poems, Tibor Denage, 1953, Meditations in an Emergency, Grove, 1956, Second Avenue, Totem, 1958, Odes, Tibor Press, 1960, and Lunch Poems, City Lights, 1965. In addition, the entire issue of Audit Magazine, Volume 1, Number 4, 1964, was made up of his poems and his essay, Personism, a Manifesto, and two essays on his work. These books plus the many poems in such magazines as Evergreen Review, Locus Solus, Yugen, C Magazine, Folder, The Floating Bear, and many others, and the poems in Don Allen's Groven Press Anthology, New American Poetry, 1945 to 60, have been as much responsible for changing the face and figuring of poetry in our time 
as have the writings of any other poet writing today. The existence in our universe of such poems as In Memory of My Feelings, Hatred, Poem for the Chinese New Year and for Bill Berkson, and Rhapsody, to name but a few, has electrified and purified our air, and no poet has escaped the charge Franco Harris poems have generated. In one brief poem, The Day Lady Died, he seemed to create a whole new kind of awareness of feeling, and by this, a whole new kind of poetry in which everything could be itself and still be poetry. Simply for this, we loved him before we even met him. His essay about Zhivago and his poems, Evergreen Review Number 7, is a brilliant and moving personal statement of artistic principle. In it, speaking about Pasternak, Frank O'Hara wrote, quote, his epic is not the glorification of the plight of the individual, but of the accomplishment of the individual in the face of almost insuperable sufferings, which are personal and emotionally real, never, never melodramatic and official. And later on, quote, as he scribbled his odds and ends, he made a note reaffirming his belief that art always serves beauty, and beauty is a delight in form, and form is the key to organic life, since no living thing can exist without it, so that every work of art, including tragedy, expresses the joy of existence. And his own ideas and notes also brought him joy, a tragic joy, a joy full of tears that exhausted him and made his head ache. And in closing his Zhivago essay, Frank O'Hara told us much about himself. He finished by saying, quote, and if love lives at all in the deep contemptuousness of our time, I think it can only be in the unrelenting honesty with which we face animate nature and inanimate things and the cruelty of our kind and perceive and articulate like Zhivago, choose love above all else. Kenneth Koch has written somewhere that Frank's presence and his poetry made things go on around him which could not have happened in the same way if he hadn't been there. This is the essence of the loss and nearly says it all. The happy saving exception to such a finality as this, that in the six years and more since the Grove Press anthology was published and with the increasing availability of Frank O'Hara's work in many more areas than simply poetry, the man's remarkable presence in his poetry has been and continues to make living be happening in ways which would not be the same without him. July 27th, 1966. All right, thank you, Nick. That was great. Thanks for uh, bringing up uh, Ken Word because he, he did recently die. Uh, and uh, and also for bringing up uh, the Tony Toll book because that's one of my favorite books uh, in, uh, in the whole New York school canon. So I, I love that book. So I recommend it to anybody if they can get their hands on it. Our next reader is Hua Nguyen. Hi, everyone. Um, thanks so much for having me. It's such a privilege to be able to be part of this celebration of Get the Money. It's truly a great compendium of difficult, previously difficult to find work by of prose by Ted Berrigan, whose work I was first introduced to in I wanna say 94 in a workshop I was taking with Anselm Hollow at Naropa University on the sonnet. Um, I was introduced to Berrigan and Bernadette Mayer 
Smith's work, um, Edwin Demby and so on. And then later um, back at New College where I was attending graduate school, I was a student of Tom Clark's who was an old friend of Ted Berrigan's and he would often say, get the money uh, to us poor graduate students when talking about sort of um, the, the tr trials of being a poet. And now that I am myself a peripatetic uh, teacher of poetry, um, it's such a pleasure to be part of being able to share a section from Get the Money that I picked um, for sentimental reasons, um, the Bellinist section, a place that um, is near to my heart uh, for its association with uh, West Coast um, figures in poetry, including my page mother, Joanne Kiger, who I don't think is mentioned here, but Philip Whalen is mentioned in this section. And you'll hear also like a list of people who died, a, a transcript of a dream and a postcard from Frank O'Hara among other notations um, in a kind of uh, day book uh, journal style entries. It begins on page 122 of your of the volume. If you haven't gotten it, you should, in the Bellinist section. An old master story, two sides of a coin, heads, Philip Whalen, tails, John Ashbury. Dead in 1969. George Gabby Hayes, 83, actor, Jimmy McHughes, 74, artist, creator of Gasoline Alley, William Kaufman, 86, founder of East West Shrine Game, Dwight David Eisenhower, 78, former president of the United States, William Henry Pratt, 81, actor, Boris Karloff, Ludwig Mies van der Rohe, uh, 83, architect, Nathaniel Lovecorn, 83, vending machine tycoon, William Friedman, 78, crypto analyst, Sigmund Gunter, 60, co-designer of the first operational jet bomber, Carl Jaspers, 86, philosopher. Ho Chi Minh, 86, president of North Vietnam. Irene Castle, 75, ballroom dancer. Bella Dodd, 64, informer. Violet and Daisy Hilton, 60, conjoined twins. A dream. I was shooting pool at Julian's Pool Hall, 4th, 14th Street and 3rd Avenue in New York City with Jim Carroll, red hair, on a green pool table. Leaning over to shoot, I noticed that instead of pool balls, we were shooting at martinis and solid triple shot size glasses. I thought this is okay, but I wondered if they would roll around toward the pockets when the cue ball hit them. It was just a mild passing thought as I lined up the shot. A postcard from Frank O'Hara, circa 1961. Dear Ted Berrigan, boy, you certainly know how to cheer a person up. Thank you very much for your letter and for the poems, which I like a lot, especially traditional manner, biographers, and words for love. Forgive this card. I thought perhaps you could give me a call at work during the weekdays, circle 58900, and we could meet for a drink or something. Also, do you want to meet Kay Koch? He's great. Anyhow, if you want the poems back before we arrange to meet, let me know and I'll mail them. 
Otherwise, I'll give them back when I see you. Best signed, Frank O'Hara. Jungle life. I was on the bed next to Donna who was napping and I thought, why not write a poem now, except I'll be Donna, though I won't say that in the poem, just write it. I wrote, I am asleep next to the Hulk. And it ended, no matter, we just, we live together in the jungle. All skill is joyful, Yeats. A poet writes always of his personal life and his finest work out of its tragedy, whatever it could be, remorse, lost love, or mere loneliness. He never speaks directly as to someone at the breakfast table. There is always a phantasmagoria. I wonder who said that. The trouble with teaching in universities is that you get lots of books in the mail with titles like An Anthology of Contemporary American Poetry, edited by guys with names like Mark Strand and that have two or three poems in them that you like a lot, which haven't been printed anywhere else so that you don't want to throw the book away and you're stuck with the whole general piece of shit. Jim Vine talking. I'm very authoritarian about my works. I make them be good. Quote, found Picasso, Jean Cocteau, and William Carlos Williams in a blue river in London. Nothing is gained by assurance as to what is insecure. Carl Sauer. Bellinus, July 27th, 1971. We've stayed up all night, packed and ready to go. We await the arrival of Lewis McAdams. At 4.30 in the afternoon, he comes and we leave uh, 2031B Oak Street, San Francisco for Bellinus, California. Lewis entertains us on the way there with talk about the Bellinus sewage problem. By 8 p.m., Alice and I are moved into Larry Kearney's place on Burt Street on the Bellinus Mesa. Sue Burke, now Mrs. John Thorpe, lives in the next room. The next day, July 28th, we wake up at noon, drink coffee, and go downtown walking, Alice, Sue, and me. Alice shops for groceries, Louis McAdams loses at pool to me, as do a few others inside Smiley's bar. Somebody drives us home for lunch. After lunch, me and Alice walk over to Bill's to see Bill Berkson. He returns our poems to us and invites us to dinner later. Then we, walk, then we three walk over to Don Allen's to borrow the manuscript of Scenes of Life at the Capitol by Philip Whalen. Don isn't there. Alice and I go home to read. Bill does too. 7 p.m. we walk to Bill's for dinner. We are met by Bob and Bobby Creeley who have a bottle of champagne for us to welcome us to town. Bobby shows Bill how to cook fried blank for our dinner and, with zucchini and mushrooms. Bill cooks the steak to leather, so the vegetables help considerably. A terrific dinner. Joanne flashes. Bob beams. Bill grins. Alice strikes poses for Bob and for Bill. Bobby holds forth beautifully. I make speeches, flirt, and flatter sincerely. Laugh to hear the crazy music, as Jack would say. 
we go home to sleep. But first I work on George's drawings. Go to sleep at 5 a.m. On vacation from San Francisco in Grand Valley, Michigan, June 6th to 14th, the author, together with the poet Ansem Hollow, had occasion to co-found the new Choctaw Nation into the Valley of Death, wrote the 600 shouting, dig it. And that's the end of my selection. <laughs> Thanks, Juan. That was really great. Um, and I, <clears throat> I love that you sort of got into Ted's uh, West Coast connections to like uh, Anselm Hollow and Joanne and Tom Clark and Philip Whalen, because it's easy to think of him purely as a New York guy, but he, he was everywhere, you know, and he knew he was more than just the New York school as well. So thank you. Our next reader is a son of Ted Berrigan. His name is Eddie Berrigan. Uh, thanks, Garrett, and thanks, Peter, and thanks, of course, to Wa and Erica and, and Nick and my brother. Um, I'm super psyched to be here. Uh, as we were discussing a little earlier, I think we started working on this book back in 2015 or 2016 when mom basically came to visit us one day and she had included, uh, she brought with her these folders um, well, basically, Dad had had saved some of these works himself in these folders: uh, a journals folder, a reviews folder, um, and a folder that was just called longer works of the more academic type, which contained works that did not really match that description whatsoever. Um, and so she kept those for a while. She maintained them every once in a while. She would add something to them and keep them in order over the years after he died. And then so one day she showed up and she had made Xeroxes for uh, Anselm and I, and it was basically time to type everything up and start working towards this. We didn't have a publisher. We didn't really have a plan. We didn't know what the shape was gonna be, um, but we had finished uh, the collected poems and a selected poem. So this was the next major area that needed uh, some attention. And it's been a long number of years. I think I've felt every possible emotion. Um, if I was gonna tell you all of them, I, it would take up more time than we have here. But let me just say it's a relief to, to finally have published this and to present it out into the world. Um, for example, there's an account of my birth in here, which I am not going to read, <laughs> but um, just to give you a sense of how personal this all is. And um, it was great working with Nick. Um, for a while, it was just mom and Anselm and I, and, but Nick was in correspondence. He was sending us pieces, including um, having typed up the journal that had the account of my birth in it. And it, there was just sort of natural evolution where he was doing editorial work for us. And then one day mom said, he's an editor now. And I was like, great. So that's all been really fun. Uh, one of the, one of the things I've been noticing from, especially in Waz reading, uh, dad recycled a lot of material. So there are these lines here and there that sort of zing out from these larger pieces that show up later in, in other poems, um, in the short poems he was writing in the seventies that are often like one line poems, one word poems. Um, and in fact, it, it, that posed a lot of editorial challenges. And one example of that is the piece called Words for Joanne Kiger in the book actually includes a passage from the piece that Garrett read, teaching 
for teachers. And I knew that at one point, but it was like years earlier in the process. And then when I was sort of proofing everything, I thought we had made some kind of horrible mistake. Um, and I was trying to figure out how it happened and eventually just figured out, nope, dad did it again. <laughs> you know, and it was exactly the way it was supposed to be. Um, so, and I guess the last thing I wanna say is that I think I'm going to read his review of lunch poems and uh, it sort of intimates how important City Lights was to him, but he never actually had a book of poetry on City Lights, although he did do editorial work on uh, Peter Orlovsky's uh, collection of poetry um, that City Lights published in 78. And that actually gets, in one of the journals in the book around 77, 78, he, he talks a lot about that experience. Um, okay, so with that, I'm going to, I'm going to read this review of lunch poems um, that came out in Culture in 1965. So in the spring, probably right after the book was published, uh, Lita Hornick was the, and her husband Morty were the founders of Culture Magazine. And I believe uh, Leroy Jones, uh, later Mary Baraka was an editor at that moment. So it's fun to think about, you know, that, that connection happening as well. Oh, the other thing I wanted to say, you know, as a New Yorker, I always feel like everything starts with New York. And, you know, dad wrote his, a lot of his major works in New York, but before that he, he spent a year at, uh, in college in Providence and then he dropped out and then he joined the army and he was stationed in Korea in the fifties uh, for a few years. And then he was restationed in Tulsa. So that's how he ended up there. And while he was in Tulsa, he wandered into the bookstore that Ron Padgett was working in. And Ron somehow as a teenager was already corresponding with, with Frank O'Hara and Alan and people for his magazine. Um, and so dad really started in Tulsa and, you know, in a way, and I, I, it's nice to remember that because it's unexpected that, you know, he was all the way out there and then he just sort of showed up in New York and it all happened right away. Okay, enough of that. Uh, Lunch Poems, Frank O'Hara. It's a great book. Ferlinghetti has published some fine books in his Pocket Poets series, and this one is the best. A book by Frank O'Hara has been long overdue, and it was a foregone conclusion that such a book, when finally published, would take its place beside Howell and Gasoline among the most important documents in contemporary poetry. In fact, it would be much easier for me to get something said about this book if I could briefly turn into Charles Olson or John Lennon or Martin Luther King. Then I just lean forward into the TV camera and say intensely, if you people really wanna know what it's all about, read Frank O'Hara. That's right, Frank O'Hara. Whereupon six publishers would rush the complete O'Hara into print in different versions. Eight producers would bring out his epic study of O'Hara titled, I Knew It, and Joe Levine would rush production on his new movie, Life on Earth, the biography of Frank O'Hara, starring young James Cagney as Frank, an interesting technical problem to be solved here, and Gig Young as John Ashbery, Rod Steiger as Jane Frolicker. What excitement. However, because I do not hope to turn into any of those gentlemen, I must turn elsewhere to talk about Frank O'Hara. In the late 50s, I was beating it through college in Tulsa, Oklahoma, 
alternately contemplating six Oscar Williams anthologies and On the Road for spiritual guidance. Time Magazine, by covering extensively the literary struggle for power between Allen Ginsberg and the future academicians, had freed the Backwoods University poets from any worries about formal restrictions, et cetera. So that even in Tulsa, we knew that now we only had to imitate Wallace Stevens if we felt like it. This made for certain problems, since it is much easier to hate Stevens and imitate Ginsburg or vice versa than it is to admire both and write at all. Consequently, we held our breaths and awaited the Don Allen anthology. And that's where Frank O'Hara first bumped into me. While romping through the assorted confessions, obsessions, concessions, and blessings of the Allen book, I was suddenly given an extremely close reading by O'Hara's poem, Why I Am Not a Painter. For reasons I don't know, this poem seemed to straighten all kinds of things out for me, as I immediately explained to Ron Padgett in one of our typical for then all night ramblings at each other. I don't remember what I said, but when I asked him recently if he remembered it, he said he did. But it would only confuse me, he added, if he were to tell me what I'd said. A few months later, I came to New York. And by virtue of a trip to the Library of Congress in Washington, DC, I managed to get hold of a copy of Frank's out of print Grove Press book, Meditations in an Emergency. Someone should reprint it immediately. It's the kind of book of poems that will create an emergency for you instantly if you aren't having one already. After reading that book and poems by Frank in various magazines, I settled down to plagiarizing all his lines in accordance with the current theory of poetry prevalent in New York City i.e. making it new and signing your name to it. This seemed entirely in accordance with the mood reading Frank's poetry puts me in. He has a knack for evoking the immediacy of people, places, and objects in a very exciting way, and with an honesty that is often not only breathtaking, but appalling. O'Hara's breadth of awareness is startling, and it is this wide range of awareness that makes his honesty so interesting. He risks everything on recording his accuracy of feeling. The reward for this daring is an intensity of emotional reality that infuses the life in his poems, i.e. the people, places, objects, relationships with an electric richness. To read a poem of Frank's such as Joe's Jacket or For the Chinese New Year is an experience in the same way that meeting someone at a party or falling in love is an experience. Home read at Joan Mitchell's. At last, you are tired of being single. The effort to be new does not upset you, nor the effort to be other. You are not tired of life together. City noises are louder because you are together. Being together, you are louder than calling separately across a telephone one to the other. And there is no noise like the rare silence when you both sleep. Even country noises, a dog bays at the moon, but when it loves the moon, it bows, and the hitherto frowning moon fawns and slips. Only you in New York are not boring tonight. It is most modern to affirm someone. We don't really love ideas, do we? And Joan was surprising you with a party for which I was the decoy, but you were surprising us by getting married and going away. So I am here reading poetry anyway, and no one will be bored tonight by me because you're here. Yesterday, I felt very tired from being at the five spot. And today, I felt very tired from going to bed early and reading Ulysses. But tonight, I feel energetic because I'm sort of the bugle, like waking people up, 
of your peculiar desire to get married. It's so original, hydrogenic, anthropomorphic, fiscal, post-anti-aesthetic, bland, unpicturesque, and William Carlos Williamsian. It's definitely not 19th century. It's not even partisan review. It's new. It must be Vanguard. Tonight, you probably walked over here from Bethany Street down Greenwich Avenue with its sneaky little bars and a women's detention house. Across 8th Street by the acres of books and pillows and shoes and illuminating lampshades, past Cooper Union where we heard the piece by Morty Feldman with the stars and stripes forever in it, and the Sagamore's terrific coffee and Andy, meaning with a cheese Danish. Did you spit on your index fingers and rub the cedar's neon circle for luck? Did you give a kind thought hurrying to Alger Hiss? It's the day before February 17th. It is not snowing yet, but it is dark and may snow yet. Dreary February of the exhaustion from parties and the exceptional desire for spring, which the ballet alone by extending its run has made bearable. Dear New York City Ballet Company, you are quite a bit like a wedding yourself. And the only signs of spring are Maria Tallchief's rhinestones and a perky little dog barking in a bar, here and there eyes which suddenly light up with blue like a ripple subsiding under a lily pad or with brown like a freshly plowed field. We vow we'll drive out and look at when a certain Sunday comes in May. And those eyes are undoubtedly Jane's and Joe's because they are advancing into spring before us and tomorrow is Sunday. This poem goes on too long because our friendship has been long, long for this life in these times, long as art is long and uninterruptible. And I would make it as long as I hope our friendship lasts if I could make poems that long. I hope there will be more, more drives to Bear Mountain and searches for hamburgers, more evenings avoiding the latest Japanese movie and watching Helen Vincent and Warner Baxter in Vogue's of 1938 instead more discussions in lobbies of the respective greatness of Diana Adams and Allegra Kent, more sunburns and more half-mile swims in which Joe beats me as Jane watches, lotion covered and sleepy, more arguments over Faulkner's inferiority to Tolstoy while sand gets into my bathing trunks. Let's advance and change everything, but leave these little oases in case the heart gets thirsty en route. And I should probably propose myself as a godfather if you have any children, since I will probably earn more money someday accidentally and could teach him or her how to swim. And now there is a Glazunov symphony on the radio. And I think of our friends who are not here, of John and the nuptial quality of his verses. He is always marrying the whole world. And Janice and Kenneth smiling and laughing respectively. They are probably laughing at the leaning tower right now. But we are all here and have their proxy. If Kenneth were writing this, he would point out how art has changed women and women have changed art and men, but men haven't changed women much. But ideas are obscure and nothing should be obscure tonight. You will live half the year in a house by the sea and half the year in a house in our arms. We peer into the future and see you happy and hope it is a sign that we will be happy too, something to cling to, happiness, the least and best of human attainments. 1957. That's one of the poems in the recent Audit magazine issue entirely devoted to O'Hara. The whole issue is marvelous. I loved it. 
and Lorenzo Thomas, Allen Ginsberg, Ron Padgett, Dick Gallup, Bill Bergson, Joe Giravolo, Harlan Dangerfield, Tony Toll, Joe Brainerd, Edward Gorey, Guillaume Apollinaire, Andre Salmon, Peter Orlovsky, Ed Sanders, and Manfred Mann loved it too. It's uncanny to have lines by O'Hara pop up constantly on TV, in the movies, in subway ads, on the radio. It makes one feel that Frank is the author of everything. But lately in contemporary poetry, many other authors also seem to have written everything or most of everything. Read Ashbery or Burroughs or Olson, though Olson gives credit sometimes. And for days you'll swear that the whole world is full of plagiarists. Anyway, Lunch Palms is just great. You won't be able to avoid it. <laughs> All right, thank you, Eddie. Appreciate your underlining the uh, the connection uh, with uh, with city lights that uh, that Ted Ted had. Also pointing out too that you know a lot of this book is made by Ted, even though it's a posthumous book because they you know the kernel of it was an arrangement that he had made. So I think it interests people to know that. And uh, and finally, I'd like to just point out that the uh, that that poem uh, isn't in lunch poems. And uh, cost us a small fortune to uh, to license that from uh, <laughs> the uh, the evil uh, mainstream publishers, but uh, but that's that's the way Ted works. <laughs> so our last reader for the evening is also a son of Ted Berrigan, Anselm Berrigan. Hey everybody, can you hear me? Okay. Yep. Um. Sorry, I was a little late. I was just teaching teaching a class, supposedly um, before I got here, and um, but I I think I got to hear most of the the reading and th uh, thank you all so much and I want to do lots of thank yous and you know I, I but I'm gonna do the, I'm just gonna try to do them briefly. I just thank you Garrett for shepherding this and thank you Eddie for you have behind the scenes just like made everything just happen thank you nick for uh uh just covering all the ground and thank you Wa and erica for uh reading so wonderfully tonight and agreeing to, to read and and it's just uh and thanks to everybody at city lights and mom you're asleep but yeah thank you too <laughs> And I want to give a special shout out for no good reason that I can think of to Tom Carey because I'm just just nice to see your face and 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 there you are. So um I oh and I want to give a shout out to Peggy because I was teaching a class before this and Peggy was there and now we're here again. So like she's been online for hours and hours and everything, but but Peggy is uh you know an anchor in our family. And I, I, I'm so glad City Lights was willing to do this book. And Garrett, I don't know how you exactly talked them into doing it. Um, and I don't mean that facetiously, but I do uh, at the same time. And I'm also just trying to like, kind of come off of my teaching space and, and the listening space and get into saying what I, want to say or read what I want to read and um, 
The Zoom is so weird. Hi, Greg. Hey, kid. It's so nice to see you there. Cliff, everybody. All right. So I'm going to read this piece called uh, Old Age and Decrepitude. <laughs> I think it's funny to say that and read it, but this is one of the pieces that he that uh, dad wrote for the newsletter, Poetry Project newsletter. Um, I think when 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 Greg was Masters was the the editor and um, convinced dad that he should be writing pieces for the newsletter, which was not a bad idea, actually. And he needed things to do. And Greg was the person to get him to do it. Anyway, this is sort of in the vein of like, what did I read uh, last year, this year? Does that make sense? This is the thing I have to say now when I... Also, I want to give a second shout out to Nick. I don't know if we could have done any of this without him. All right. Old age and decrepitude. <laughs> I do believe that even I couldn't outcamp Eileen Miles' mini stunner in Newsletter 80, the February 1981 issue. I submit my favorite books is the title only Bob Rosenthal should be able to conceive. And by implying that borrowing, stealing, or the receiving of gifts from less impecunious friends is her SOP with respect to keeping hip to it all reading-wise, she effortlessly maintains her I-cover-the-waterfront role even while laying down that cool, if slightly breathless, Danny Richmond new directions under city lights wrap on your door. She has rocks in her heart. Requited love doth never bore. It's true. And just the other day I said to Alice, you know, if you know enough people, sooner or later some son of a bitch will give you a terrific book to read. For example, I taught a class at the Kerouac School in Europa last spring, which met on 10 consecutive Friday evenings, and whose name I remember only as my novel class. Michael Brownstein had invented it and usually taught it. I adored the books we read for it and then discussed often heatedly and at great length. They were On Us by Douglas Wolfe, Heavenly Breakfast by Samuel R. Delaney, Fat People by Carol Sturm Smith. Who is Sylvia by Tom Clark? And What's for Dinner by James Schuyler. FYI, the students, including Annie Witkowski and Liz Fox, liked but didn't entirely understand DW, found Chip Delaney to be banal, superficial, boring, annoying, and without any redeeming qualities, had mixed feelings about fat people. I don't think I cared very much about her, said Liz Fox, meaning the heroine, were rapturous over Jimmy Schuyler and despised Tom Clark, despite having to admit his book met the requirements. Oh, it's a work of art, but that's about all, my favorite student said pointedly. <laughs> We finished with The Street by Aram Saroyan, which all agreed wasn't much. That was my spring in prose. Each book was perfect in its own way and all were beautiful. 
Wolf was very powerful. Delaney, brilliant, provocative, and spooky slash hilarious. Carol Smith was wonderfully moving and resonated with courage, which is no small thing. Tom Clark was a scared novice black magician who wisely declined offer of a permanent position, while James Schuyler was naturally a knockout and outrageous. Aram had it all covered, and one could never say to him, you lack charm, though he offended Clark, who hated him forever, and despite getting his facts wrong, he pleased me, though in doing so made my best friend hate me even more than he does now, though not more than I hate him. <laughs> uh, Scorpio's notion of perfect revenge, poetic justice, is when someone you love in cold fury for some reasons fixes a steely pair of eyeballs onto you and says carefully, don't ever speak to me again. Comply. As preparation for this assignment by Greg Sheila Graham Masters, I made a partial list of books read during 1980. The list as compiled from memory with help from Alice Notley and Steve Carey is incomplete in that A, it consists only of books I liked in one way or another, and B, after 327 titles and authors, Greg called and asked to pick up this piece, which I had told him days ago was already finished. Given two more days, I'd have remembered at least 100 more that I'd liked, which means 950 or so books read during 1980. This seems less than I had recalled other years when less pressing events left time for recording books read in journals. But of course, we did travel a lot. Boulder, Needles, SF, Providence, South Attleboro. And I did get sidetracked by teaching the spring term at Naropa and the fall at Stevens Institute of Technology in Hoboken. Then, too, we had NEA grants, which needed to be spent. There was Woody Guthrie's house to be visited in Okema, Oklahoma, with Alan. And then, of course, the great Naropa Poetry War briefly engaged most of my attention. As I knew the Federation, myself's own head, would require of me a full report, I had to imbibe through my armpits a great mass of conflicting documents subtexts, e.g. Slinger, and even one great never-spoken statement, part credo, part political exegesis, part Chief Joseph update, I will fight plenty more. Next came microscopic scrutiny of the major participants, followed by depth interviews with same, and finally the great Naropa dinner, drinks, dope, white stuff, an extended shouting match between myself as non-neutral and general anti-old hick Jackson, the opposition leader. Well, nobody won that, thank God. So after debriefing Rabbi Martin, the fag, boob, president of poetry and party leader of the party in power, who only wanted to know exactly what was going on, I was able to submit my report to nobody and leave. It was only June but I barely remember the rest of the year except his title and authors in bed. I did read a little, that is in deep code. <laughs> I did read, <laughs> I did read a little poetry too. 
triangles in the afternoon is not heavily as bleak a series of pictures of current actuality as ever elicited a shrug, an apologetic look, and a fervent oh darn from any poet just finished reading what he had written. Ron Paget, of whom I always assume mistakenly that it is clear to everyone it is to me, he is a far better poet than Gary Snyder or Mike McClure, let alone Robert Bly and Mark Strand, like the United States, owes no apologies to anyone. In the, <laughs> in, the, in this book, even more so than in the past, he speaks of experience and emotion, his own, clearly and directly, with no technical distortion. I gleefully and bitterly envy him this one. And some hollows heavy jars killed me. He is wild Bill Hickok facing down death, father and son and blue-eyed ghost, finite continued. Morning of the poem, I can't put down Jimmy Schuyler's new book. At third reading last week, it was still being almost all anyone could ever want. Bob Rosenthal's poems and magazines inspire like Jimmy from a different country. Bob wants to get it all, and so do I. And he makes it so I can't forget it. And to try this way. Eileen Miles is better than the rest of you. So eat your hearts out. I'd never dare tell what I like best in her poems. Last but not least, I'd never not take the responsibility. Alice Notley is even better than anyone has yet said she is. But if you'd rather just have something wonderful to read rather than me, I recommend The Letters of Evelyn Waugh, Worth Every Dime and Tales from the Texas Gang by Bill Blackolive, which Allen Ginsberg got in the mail and loaned to me. Send $5.50 to Texas Gang Enterprises, P.O. Box 5974, Austin, Tex, 78763. It's the sleeper of 1980, and so am I. <laughs> Thank you for tolerating that. <laughs> Thank you, Anselm. That was great. I think, uh, you know, we, we've gone almost 90 minutes, so I think we can probably uh, probably have Peter step in and uh, close close the event uh, if you're out there, Peter. Yeah. Wow. Um, that was something else. I mean, some pretty rich stuff. Uh, thank you all for gracing our virtual halls. I mean, it was an honor to have you kind of all in the same place at the same time. I mean, it's really awesome. And Garrett. Thank you for doing the honors. You know, Garrett's an amazing poet, but but he's also a really great community builder. And I don't know if he gets enough credit for that. So always an honor to be in the room with you, Garrett. Um, and thanks to all of you in the audience for joining us and helping complete the circle. Uh, only thing missing is popping over to Specs for a drink. What can I say? We're looking forward to that day and hopefully we can all get together and do that sooner than later. Tonight's event has been made possible by support from the City Lights Foundation continuing the legacy of our founder, the late Lawrence Ferlinghetti, through public events like this one, a publishing program, and educational outreach, all dedicated to sustaining a vibrant community of readers, writers, and independent thinkers. So be safe, be well, everyone. Hope to see you all again soon.
Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.